Hello and welcome to NeuroPodcases. Today I'm joined by Professor Bernard Yan, who is both a stroke neurologist as well as neurointerventionist working at the Royal Melbourne Hospital in Australia. In today's episode, we discuss the role of mechanical thrombectomy in the management of acute ischemic stroke. We hope you enjoy listening. So I'm joined today by Professor Bernard Yan, um, who's a stroke neurologist as well as a neurointerventionist. Thanks for joining me today, Bernard. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. Thanks, John. Yep. Um, so really, the purpose of today's episode is to talk about endovascular clot retrieval for large vessel occlusive stroke. Perhaps um, before we start talking about the topic, though, can you just tell us a bit about yourself and how you've ended up uh, doing these sort of combined roles? Yeah, yeah, sure. Very delighted to, John. So, so I started... Um, I started in the early in the early two thousands, and at that time, the the really hot topic was endovascular uh, carotid stenting. So my mentors um, were very encouraging, and they um, gave me some advice about about how to how to go about learning carotid stenting. And at that time, it it wasn't easy, and um, in terms of training opportunities in Australia, so I looked overseas and. Um, I did a scouting mission in, in the States and, and also in, in Europe. And, and I decided that in, in Germany I was able to get more hands-on training, so that's how I chose, uh, chose Frankfurt. And it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. I spent two years there. As the uh, intervention fellow, it was all uh, hands-on training. So I, I first um, um, started with diagnostic angiograms, but because uh, the place I was trained, um, the Institute of Neuroradiology in Frankfurt, uh, it was all neuro, so uh, I was able to quickly ramp up my numbers in diagnostic uh, angiogram. And initially, my my aim was really just to learn carotid stenting. But my mentor, very wise, and on looking back, uh, incredibly wise and insightful. And his advice was, I should learn everything. And I was an impressionable youth, and I said, Yeah, okay, right, I'll just learn everything. So, um, so I moved beyond carotid stenting, and I learned coiling, uh, and also uh, embolization for AV malformation, AV fistula. And at that time, acute stroke intervention wasn't as big a thing as, as it is now. And in those days, we really only had uh, two choices. And uh, one was intra-arterial uh, injection or intra-arterial thrombolysis using urokinase uh, or pro-urokinase. And the other option was, was balloon angioplasty. Yeah, so that's how I got my, my yeah. start, and then I came back in uh, came back to Australia in two thousand and five, and uh, there we are. Good, thanks. And um, I think neurology trainees will be aware of the indications for thrombectomy, but perhaps won't be uh, all that familiar with the different techniques that can be used. Um, are you able just to summarise the differences between the approaches that can be used for this procedure? Yeah, yeah. Well, so a bit of a bit of history lesson, I guess. So we started. This concept, um, thrombectomy, in 2005-2006, and there was when a um, a new a new type of device called the the Mercy device is is like a little uh, corkscrew, or some would call it an, like an upside down uh, Christmas tree. And so we participated in in that study, um, but the the result wasn't wasn't that successful in terms of uh, opening up or recanalizing arteries or a perfusion, so we quickly gave that up, and things 
really changed in 2008. And there was a, um, a new device and, and it changed, it was a game changer, it, it really was. And it, it changed, uh, well, it Im with vastly improved recanalization rate and that, that was the, the Stentriever. And so from 2008 uh, onwards, the, uh, the uh, those ongoing studies, the randomized control studies, the IMS3 and so forth, they all failed in 2013 in a spectacular way, and that was known as the, the year of doom and gloom. And um, three randomized control studies all came out in the same year, uh, unable to show superiority of thrombectomy versus standard therapy. And that led to a lot of soul-searching, and we all felt uh, it was probably the selection criteria that a lot of patients got into the trials actually didn't, didn't have large vessel occlusion because they're qualified to get into the trials. You don't need a CT angiogram or vascular imaging; you just need a non-contrast CT. Mm -hmm. And that we felt was um, was the what was the underlying cause of the demise of um, of these three trials. And and the doom and gloom lasted for about uh, two years. And some of us felt that oh, maybe we should all go back and learn how to do no conduction studies and have a new career. And thankfully, we did because the, the Dutch led the way. So the Dutch uh, led a study called Mr. Clean, and, and this was a, a good lesson in that uh, in the Netherlands, the government decided, okay, there were now three negative trials, we are no longer going to reimburse uh, thrombectomy for acute stroke patients unless they are in a trial. And that really galvanized the recruitment. So you know, within two years they were able to to finish a trial, and that was in 2014, and they announced it in Turkey and in the International Stroke Congress. Um, the principal investigator, uh, with a twinkle in his eye, decided to pause and withhold the primary outcome for several seconds, so you could hear a penny drop. Right? And when he when he gave the results, the primary results showing absolute superiority of thrombectomy versus standard therapy in terms of the primary outcome uh, modified on Ken scale, there was a standing ovation. I've seen, I've been to a lot of Congress, but, but you, know, you don't see a lot of standing ovation these days unless you hear, uh, you know, a maestro in a concert like uh, Pavarotti. <laughs> but anyway, there was a, that, that, so that galvanized the four other studies to uh, quickly wrap up the, the results. So that led to five studies in 2015, all published in New England Medical Journal, all showing superiority of thrombectomy versus standard therapy. Mm -hmm. Now, that was utilizing um, just centrivers, and there are differing techniques. I'll try to answer your question. So the initial techniques would be the placement of, um, of a guiding catheter with a balloon. So this is what we commonly call a balloon uh, guiding catheter. And the idea is to arrest flow on the basis that during the procedure, when a clot is being retrieved, the last thing you want would be anterograde flow to send the clot further down the arbor of the vascular tree. So the A-French guide is to be placed in the uh, cervical proximal segment of the internal carotid artery, and the inflation affects arrest of flow, and that then allows for the centriva to safely retrieve the clot. So things have changed a little bit, and things have changed um, when technology uh, advances. So in, the, in those years, our new devices 
and new concepts came out, and the, these were the uh, direct aspiration catheters. Now, in the very early days, they were too stiff, or the inner lumen wasn't capacious enough, and you really were not able to um, to aspirate clots. But the the newer generation, uh, they're now up to six French. So a six French uh, distal aspiration catheter, uh, you could easily drag out clots from M1, mm -hmm. uh, or and certainly distal ICA. What happened afterwards was that people, uh, or we started to improvise a bit and we mixed and matched the de devices a bit. So there are now um, different techniques with a combination of, of aspiration and stentriva. And it's named after, in a cheeky way, after the, the devices. So it's either called uh, Solumbra or Trivumbra. <laughs> but it's really a combination of distal access catheter and yeah. stentriva. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. And you, you kind of mentioned in 2015 there was a sort of sea change with the publication of these big trials. So what were the main conclusions from those trials and how they how did that impl like impact on uh, clinical practice and guidelines? Yeah, well, it, it, um, but it, changed, it changed everything. It, um, and the, the effect of thrombectomy was so vast, and if you measure that in terms of number needed to treat, and it depends on which trial you read, but roughly it's 2.3. So you treat 2.3 patients for one patient uh, to benefit in terms of achieving an independent um, functional status. That's more powerful than anything that we've come across in, in medicine. Mm -hmm. And um, so the guidelines came out uh, almost immediately after the publication of the, the five trials. Now, this then led to more questions, in especially implementation. How do you um, how do you roll this out to ensure uh, equity of, of access? And that, of course, has to be balanced against maintaining expertise. Because the, the procedure uh, itself, they're, they're all, uh, I mean, each case is a bit different, but there are often surprises such as um, difficult vascular access, um, if the existence of intracranial atherosclerosis, uh, tendon lesions, then these all require different techniques. And so it, it stands a reason to, to centralize uh, cases to be done at high volume centers. Mm -hmm. And we've actually shown that, and this has also been published by other groups, that um, high volume centers, uh, patients' outcome uh, undeniably are, are better. So we now, we now have um, this this kind of situation or it's, it's kind of a tension between having many centers uh, that can provide endovascular thrombectomy versus what we call the hub and spoke model where we have several, mm -hmm. uh, not, not many, many, but several hub centers that are able to service a, a much broader regional area. So that, that's, that's the implementation challenge and it's still yeah. quite challenging. And those early trials, I think all the, most of them used just non-con CT and CTA as the entry criteria rather than uh, more advanced imaging. Is that correct? And that yeah, so the old studies, so 2013, for those studies, published in 2013, they never mandated vascular imaging. And as a result, they, there was a substantial proportion of patients who entered into the studies where they didn't have um, a large vessel occlusion. Whereas the, the five studies that got published uh, in 2015, um, vascular imaging, a confirmation of large vessel occlusion was an entry criteria. 
Yeah, okay. And when you say large vessel occlusion, so w which vessels are you talking about here? Which, like how, how small is a large vessel? Ah, I love that, okay. So in the trials, we included distal intracranial internal carotid artery, uh, M1. Those were in most of the five trials, but there were uh, two out of the five which allowed for the inclusion of M2 and also A1. Uh, so, um, this is also becoming a bit hot too, because we now know that uh, if we take all of the vascular occlusion strokes, probably about 17 or 18% um, are cases caused by what we call medium-sized vascular occlusion, and there's a new term coming out called MEVO, mm -hmm. and this would include um, distal M2, M3, A1, A2, P1, uh, P2, and the, there are, there's a new generation of devices which allowed us to, to get to those um, smaller arteries, but these have never been tested. Mm -hmm. and, and this has to be balanced against um, a much higher risk for a vascular complication because these smaller arteries are often under two millimeters and the, the vascular wall um, uh, structure is a bit different and they are more prone to uh, arterial dissection and, and also arterial rupture. Mm -hmm. So the, ch the chance of um, causing a subrunning hemorrhage is actually greater yeah. than, um, than the M1s and also the distal ICAs. Now, then we, we now have a, uh, a problem, is that do we actually run a trial to ask the question uh, whether distal uh, arterial occlusion or MEVO would benefit from thrombectomy? Or is the appetite so low to run another trial that it is almost impossible, and it may be. Mm -hmm. And that actually a stronger argument to run clinical imaging registry studies. So we're running one, and uh, so Peter Mitchell and Mark Parsons and, and I, we're running a study called, um, called MOSES, and as with most studies, you come up with an acronym, then you try to fit the words in. So believe me, the, the words fit in. And <laughs> uh, so the idea of MOSES, and we are, um, we're looking at the recruitment of 3,000 patients uh, around Australia, and um, pay, uh, so these will be patients who um, are eligible for thrombectomy. We include, of course, all kinds of patients, including MEVO. And this, we hope, and actually we believe, would be one way to try to answer the question whether MEVOs would benefit from thrombectomy. Yeah. Thanks. And then couple of years after the sort of those big five trials were published um, there was a lot of excitement uh, when there were new trials uh, published dawn and diffuse 3 which looked at extending the time to thrombectomy mm -hmm. but this these made use of um, what's termed advanced imaging and mm -hmm. um, you just have to comment on how those studies uh, what, what, what were the main conclusions and how that's influenced yeah. treatment decisions yeah no that's a good question John so so Dawn and Diffuse extended the window up to 24 hours, but the, it's actually Dawn that extended 24 hours. Diffuse was only uh, up to about halfway, about 16 hours. But it proved uh, uh, with a lot of conviction that uh, in carefully selected patients with a favorable penumbra using advanced imaging, that the, um, the benefit that they can derive from thrombectomy is uh, as strong and as convincing 
as those patients uh, who, who get treatment within six hours. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the first statement to, to make. Now, then this of course uh, creates uh, more challenges. Um, advanced imaging is not widely available uh, around the world and that's well partly partly cost issues but also partly that we don't really have a, uh, a uniform way to, um, to process uh, advanced imaging so by that I mean uh, perfusion imaging either CT perfusion or MR perfusion uh, there are a myriad of, of softwares probably the two best knowns are Rapid or now called iRapid and, um, and MyStar there are several others like um, Olia and, mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, Viz AI and so forth and they all have the advantages and, and disadvantages um, but all, all, you know, all of this software costs um, uh, cost quite a bit by subscription so it may not be practical for low resource countries to, to have to, have to uh, fork out you know, that kind of money uh, for extra software uh, so there's now a push uh, to investigate whether these patients beyond six hours up to 24 hours could benefit without advanced imaging. Mm -hmm. and, and there are surrogate markers for that, such as uh, vascular imaging, which, is, which doesn't require perfusion imaging, mm -hmm. and, and so forth. But the, the association, or, or at least the, the strength of the evidence, is of course weaker. Yeah. And then uh, thinking forward uh, to some of the future challenges um, and, and some of the unanswered questions, um, I guess a lot of people would say, well, thrombectomy uh, has become the standard of care for large vessel occlusion. Is there still a role for thrombolysis preceding thrombectomy? Um, do you have any thoughts on, on that? Yeah, well, uh, several, several thoughts. So I think it comes down to uh, access and, and time. There will be, I mean, unless we, until we have the, the evidence to support thrombectomy treating uh, medium-sized vessels or distal occlusion, there's still going to be a very powerful role for thrombolysis, that's, that's one. Um, the flip side of the coin is that there will be perhaps cases where thrombolysis causes more problems and may lead to more harm. And we suspect that uh, probably will be in, uh, in cases where there's tandem occlusion, where there's a need to implant a stent and necessitating uh, dual antiplatelets and also anticoagulation. And probably in those, in those cases, you don't really uh, need thrombolysis as a bridging therapy. That would be one. Uh, and also where uh, uh, there are cases where there's a large volume of clot and thrombolysis so probably doesn't, doesn't help. Mm -hmm. And um, so running a, a trial, in fact, there are several trials around the world to answer the question whether in selected group of patients, thrombolysis could be, um, could be removed. Mm -hmm. So that's what we call direct to the, to the cath lab. Um, so we're running a study called Direct Safe, and it's a, it's a multi-center study, including Asian uh, hospitals. And so this is uh, our study. Uh, there are two studies now completed. The, of course, there's still some question whether it provides the definitive answer. Uh, so there's one study called uh, Direct Empty, mm -hmm. and there's another one from Japan called Skip. Yeah. Uh, Direct Empty has been published. Uh, Skip was announced, but not published yet. And in the Netherlands, the um, the Dutch powerhouse are following on with Mr. Clean OIV, 
and also in Switzerland there's um, a Swift Direct. Yeah. And so I think this is a, an exciting space to, to watch. Yeah. And just two, two more uh, practical considerations. So a lot of the trials and the guidelines reflect uh, what was entered into trials had stroke severities of at least over sort of six on the NIHSS. Mm. Um, do you see patients presenting with lower stroke severity, so mild strokes, but that CTA shows large vessel occlusion? And what factors do you take into account in those cases? Yeah, yeah uh, very hard question. Very hard question. In fact, um, in fact, uh, our brilliant uh, stroke fellow John <laughs> is actually doing a looking into exactly this question, and. And it, it's um, it's also a, a coin with two sides, in, into um, into asking whether patients with um, with a low stroke score would benefit from from thromectomy, and and I think it, it comes down to the the area of tissue at risk, and th there is a bit of a, a nuance to the NIHSS score. The NIHSS score very often in the acute phases fluctuate, so what you see. Right now, might change mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, uh, it might change a bit in half an hour's time, and also the interator agreement is uh, also variable. Yep. So what you see now would be different by uh, is examined by a different person. So I think um, it it might be a mistake to put too much stock in the NIHS score right at that moment. Yeah, and you would want to have complementary information, especially advanced imaging. To tell you the uh, the area or the volume of tissue at risk, uh, and also the location of vascular occlusion, I think those would be more uh, very important considerations when you try to prognosticate the the two choices: do nothing or yeah. uh, provide thrombectomy. Yeah, and um, could you have a scenario where someone presents perhaps under six hours, uh, but does have advanced imaging done just as part of their workup, and it shows, shall we say, what would be unfavourable? perfusion in the later time window. Um, is that a difficult decision as an Very hot area, very controversial. If you ask um, if you ask a hundred or a thousand neurointerventionists and stroke neurologists that question, I think it will be split somewhere in, in the middle. At this stage we don't have any evidence to support the exclusion of patients within six hours who have unfavorable penumbra. But the registries that we have and the data that we have gleaned allow us at least uh, to have some sort of prognostication of that patient. Mm -hmm. And that also allows the clinician to have a reasonably sensible discussion with the family. So you can imagine several scenarios in a, in a 90 year old patient who requires help with shopping, banking, and driving, and or who may have advanced cancer with uh, an unfavorable penumbra, you could have the discussion with the family to look at expectations and so forth. Whereas on the other hand, uh, you see a 40-year-old uh, footballer and, um, you know, at a carotid artery dissection and so forth, but with an favorable penumbra, uh, you would of course have a, a very different uh, mm -hmm. take on it. Yeah, so case by case yeah. selection. Yeah, but it, it does allow for an informed uh, discussion. Yeah. 
Great. Well, thanks very much for your time. That was really useful. I'm sure uh, doctors will be interested to hear your own career path as well as some of your thoughts on the current sure. issues. Okay. Thank Cheers. You. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Future podcast episodes will be coming soon. Please visit our website, neuropodcases.co.uk, for more information.